God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then in the rest of the chapter, David's prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving. And then to summarize what God says in chapter 8, look at verses 1, 14, and 15. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And that funny little name means their chief city. He took it out of their hands. Then look down at the end of verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Literally, the Lord was with David wherever he went. That's repeated twice in the chapter in verse 6 and 14. And then look at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Amen? And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Please be seated. This passage is the culminating point of the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, this passage records for us 
the Davidic covenant. Now, you know that in the Bible, a biblical covenant, when God makes a covenant with his people, is the way that God confirms and secures a promise. Interestingly, you will have noticed that the word covenant does not occur in 2 Samuel 7. But if you were to turn forward to 2 Samuel 23, you would see David call this passage a covenant. And the Psalms, for instance, in Psalm 89, call this God's covenant with David. And it's really the culmination of all the Old Testament covenants, but it is connected to all that comes before it. In fact, in this passage, we'll see how this passage connects to God's promises to Abraham and looks forward to the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But this morning, I especially want to look with you at three things that we find in this passage. First of all, if you'd let your eyes look at verses 1 to 3, I want you to see a comparison. David makes a comparison between his palace and the edifice that the Ark of the Covenant is being housed in. Then in verses 4 to 7, I want you to see a condescension. When God comes to Nathan in a vision, he teaches him about a condescension that he has made in order to draw near to his people. And then in verses 8 to 17, I want you to see a covenant. So we're going to look at a comparison, a condescension, and a covenant, God's covenant with David as we study this passage together. First, look especially at verse 2. Here you will see a comparison that David makes. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Here is David, king in Jerusalem. It's now his capital city. He has uh, gotten rest from his enemies on all sides. The tribes of Israel are united around him. He is dwelling now in a beautiful palace. It's made out of cedar. And he looks out of the window and he notices that the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the special presence of God with his people in the Old Testament, is in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a tent. And he looks at his house, it's a palace, and he looks at the Ark of the Covenant, and it's in a tent. And he says, something is wrong with this picture, because God gave me everything that I have, and God's glory is more important than mine, and the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's presence with these people is in a tent, and I'm in a palace. There's something wrong here. I want to build God a house. I want to build a beautiful structure, a house for that Ark of the Covenant to dwell in because God is greater than David and Israel knows that and the world needs to know that. And it's a wonderful instinct on David's part. David is basically recognizing the creator-creature distinction. It's the very first principle of theology. You know how it goes. There is a God and we are not him. God is God and we are not And as Paul says at the end of Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. So we wouldn't exist without God, and we exist in order to give glory to God. And David says, I want to give glory to God. He's the one who took me from 
shepherding sheep to be the king over Israel. I want him to get glory. I want to build him a house. Now watch out in this passage because there's a play on word with the Hebrew word house, bayit. You see that word, by the way, in your English Bibles in city names like Bethlehem, house of bread. Uh, and there's a play on word with that house. David lives in a house, meaning a palace. He wants to build God a house, meaning a temple, a, a temple for the ark of God, the ark of the covenant to dwell in. And David's instinct is right. It's absolutely right. It's, it's important for you to see Nathan does not rebuke David, and God does not tell Nathan to rebuke David, David's instincts are good. In fact, Nathan reiterates what we already see in the first three verses. The Lord was with David. Nathan says, the Lord is with you, David. God tells Nathan to say, I am with you. And then we notice two places in chapter 8, it emphasizes that the Lord is with you. David is not, when, when David is forbidden to build the temple, it's not a rebuke. There, there's a greater message going on. So David's instinct to want to honor God and for God's house to be greater than his house is a good instinct. By, by the way, that's vital for the spiritual life, for you to want to glorify God. I mean, we're Presbyterians after all, and the first answer to the first question of the Sorter Catechism is our chief end, the reason that we were put here for, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And David is saying, God's greater than me, I want to glorify him. And that so often is at the beginnings of healthy spiritual experience in the Christian life. A friend of mine was the senior partner at the most uh, prestigious law firm in another southern state. He had grown up in a Presbyterian church there. He had been baptized there. He was a, a member in good standing there, having made a profession of faith, and he was a church officer. And the pastor was getting ready to do a sermon series through the book of Genesis, and the pastor read Genesis 1-1 on Sunday morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And my friend said, he said, I heard that verse as if I had never read it before in my life. And I realized that I was living as if that verse were not true. In other words, I, he was living for himself. He was living, though he was a professing believer, though he was an officer in the church, he was not living for God's glory. He was not living as if from him and through him and to him are all things. And just hearing that verse convicted him of his sin, and he was converted on the spot as a professing believer and an officer in that church by realizing that we are here to live for God's glory. Well, David is saying in this passage, I want God to be glorified. That is a very good thing. That's the comparison that leads David to aspire to building a temple for God. Then, if you'll look at verses 4 to 7, you'll see the response of God. God immediately comes to Nathan, his prophet, in a dream, and he says, tell David he's not going to build me a house. And notice the explanation. And look especially at uh, verse 6. 
I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent even in a tabernacle. Have you ever thought about this? When the children of Israel were living as nomads in tents in the wilderness on the way from Egypt to the land of Canaan, where was God? Right in the middle of them in a tent. By the way, Moses emphasizes this. You remember after the golden calf incident in Exodus, God comes to Moses and at first he says, I'm going to obliterate these sinners. And Moses intercedes as a picture of the mediation of Jesus Christ. And God says, okay, I'm not going to obliterate these sinners. But then he says, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you on up to the land of Canaan, but I'm not going to go with you. Do you remember what Moses says when God says that? He says, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, go ahead and just kill us here now. Why does he say that? Because the whole thing you want in life is God. Why did you come to Park City's Presbyterian Church this morning? I hope it's because you want God more than anything in this world. You want God in your midst. You want, a, you, you want your soul to do business with God. You want to engage with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. And that means through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. You want God. And God symbolized that he was with his people by living in a tent in the midst of them. Think about it. We know, you, know, you may get a wrong idea of the tabernacle, even from studying it in Sunday school or VBS or in a study Bible. The tabernacle was an impressive structure. It was an, an excruciatingly detailed structure. It was a fairly big structure, probably less than half the size of this room. Take that in. The tabernacle of God, less than half the size of this room. It was an expensive tent made with expensive material. But in the end, it was a tent. (laughs) And, And God says, that's where I dwelt with my people. When my people lived in tents, I was there in the midst of them living in a tent. Now, do you see what that's a picture of? It's a picture of the condescension of God drawing near to his people. You know from your New Testament that Jesus has drawn near to us. God has been embodied and in flesh in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has drawn near to us. We know that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus knows what it is like to live in our skin. He knows what it is like to be human and to face the weaknesses, especially of life in this fallen world. And so we know that Jesus is drawn near, and we know that in the Gospels, he says that when he goes to the right hand of the Father, he sends another comforter to come near to us and to be in us and with us, the Holy Spirit. But did you know that when Jesus drew near to you, he was simply imaging what his Father was like? Don't get the idea that the heavenly Father is cold and distant and unconcerned and Jesus is warm and loving and near and concerned. No, Jesus is like his Father. And God the Father is saying that to David. David, when my people lived in tents, I lived in tents with them. I was right there in the middle of you 
in the midst of your danger, in the midst of your toil, in the midst of your travel and obligations and obstacles. I was there. I've drawn near to my people. That's your God, friends. Your God draws near to you. And Jesus, of course, is a glorious and the the supreme example of that, but Jesus is like his Father. The God of the Old Testament drew near to his people. And God wants to remind David that, even when David's aspirations are good to build him a temple. Then, if you'll look at verses 8 and following, and especially verses 8 to 11, God says three things to David. He says, David... First of all, I'm going to give you a great name. Look at verse 9. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, does that remind you of anything? You remember in Genesis 11, the people of the plain of Shinar who wanted to build the Tower of Babel, do you remember what Moses tells us they wanted to do that for? Moses says they wanted to do that in order to make a name for themselves. And of course, God foils their plans, but then in Genesis 12 too, what does he say to Abraham? I will give you a great name. They wanted to make a great name for themselves. He foiled their plans, but to Abraham he says, I will give you a great name. He says the same thing to David. Do you see the tie-in with the Abrahamic promises and covenant? Then he says, look at verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll put them in the land, and they'll never be removed. Then in verse 11, he says, and furthermore, I'm going to make you a house. Now, here's the play on words. David lives in a house, a palace. He sees the ark of God in a tent. He says he wants to make a house that is a temple for God. God comes back to David and says, no, David, you won't build me a house, a temple. I'll build you a house, a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. And in verses 12 to 16, he explains that this dynasty will reign forever. In words that clearly indicate uh, Solomon, when he, when he says, I'll be a father to him and a son to me, and when he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness will not depart from me. In other words, when Solomon goes astray, and he will, I won't depart from him like I departed from Saul. You remember, God never promised to Saul that he would put his son on the throne. Jonathan and David were dear friends, and Jonathan loved David, and David, Jonathan, and they made a covenant with one another, but Jonathan was never promised to be on the throne. And of course, Saul withdrew his anointing, his Holy Spirit, from Saul. But uh, what God is saying here to David is, even when Solomon goes astray, I'm going to continue this promise, and your seed, your descendants will reign forever. And as far as I can tell, uh, the Davidic line reigns in Jerusalem longer than any other dynasty in the history of the world, even longer than the great Chinese dynasties. Uh, David's heirs reigned in Jerusalem for 400 plus years, 
While there were multiple capitals and multiple families in the northern kingdom, the Davidic line continued to reign. But turn with me to the end of 2 Kings, if you'll look in chapter 25 and look especially at verses 7 to 11. Uh, David is promised that his line will reign forever. The people of God will dwell in the land. But listen to how the story of the monarchy of Israel ends, seemingly. 2 Kings 25, beginning in verse 7, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the king of the guard, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. It's a, it's a graphic, crushing picture, isn't it? Zedekiah, the last one ruling in the land, has his children brought in front of him. They are executed with him looking. And then his eyes are put out so that the last thing that he ever remembers seeing is the end of the reign of the descendants of David. And then he is carried off into exile and he lives the rest of the, his life with that image seared upon his conscience. And then the people of Israel are uprooted from their place, uprooted from their land, and taken into Babylon, into captivity. And the rest of the Old Testament asks the question, what is going on? Have the promises of God to David failed? He said his name would be great. He said we would be placed in the land forever. He said his kingdom would never end and there would never lack a man on David's throne ever and suddenly we're in exile out of the land and there is no Davidic king. Have the promises of God failed? Perhaps you have asked that yourself in wondering about what the Lord was doing in your life, in wondering about prayers that seemed to be unanswered. The rest of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're all asking that question. Have the promises of God to David failed? Has the covenant that God made with David failed? Well, turn with me to the very first verse of the New Testament. And I want to walk through just the early chapters of Matthew. The very first verse of the New Testament reads this way. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, by the way, 
the very first sentence is a chapter heading that comes out of the book of Genesis. It's found 10 times in the book of Genesis, the book of the genealogy of. The next phrase, he is the son of David. So the New Testament begins by pointing back to 2 Samuel 7 and saying of Jesus, he is the son of David. Then if you'll notice in chapter 2, what happens? Wise men come from the east asking what question? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they come before Jesus and they worship him. Then in chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching. And what does he preach? Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the end of that passage, Jesus is baptized by John and the Holy Spirit is poured out on him. He is anointed by the Spirit as king. And then he preaches in chapter 4, look at 4.17, Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which your former pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, used to say ought to be titled kingdom life in a fallen world. How do you live the life of the kingdom in this fallen world? And he begins by telling you about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the king to whom those promises were made. I am the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And now that I am here, God's kingdom has come. You cannot understand 2 Samuel 7 without Jesus, and you cannot understand Jesus without 2 Samuel. The gospel of the kingdom that he preached is a gospel that fulfills the promise and the covenant that God made in 2 Samuel 7. God made David a promise that only Jesus can fulfill. But think of it, my friends. Our brothers and sisters, the believers of that time, lived for hundreds of years wondering, Lord, how in the world are you going to fulfill this promise? It looks like your promise has failed. So when you find yourself in those places in your Christian life when you wonder if God's promises to you have failed. You remember the covenant that God made to David, and you remember that only Jesus can fulfill it, and you remember that all the promises of God to you are yea and amen in Christ. If you are resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, the promises of God to you are sure no matter what is going on in the situations and circumstances of your life. He will be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would grant us to behold wonderful things in your law and to believe them in Jesus' name. Amen.